Good evening. Surprised we didn't have more songs about rebaptism. I guess there's not a whole lot of them. You did all of them. Good. I also noticed we're a lot more formal with you Packers now. You know, the suit and tie. Maybe I need to pick it up a notch. Thank you for being here. I want to remind you that next week we close out this series on baptism with my good friend Wes McAdams. We'll be co-preaching that evening discussing everything that we've discussed so far in this series and hopefully wrapping it up and putting a nice bow on it. Tonight, I'm approaching a question that I get asked a lot. And so I thought it would be best to include it in a series on baptism because so many folks ponder their baptism and ask the question, should I do it again? And please understand, it is not my goal in this series to get you to question your baptism. And I'm a little hesitant to preach on rebaptism because I don't want people walking away thinking that they should question their baptism. But I do think that there are certain cases in which we do need to visit this topic again in your personal life. If you've been baptized, but maybe not for the proper reason or with the proper mode or whatever, yes, there is an occasion when we need to consider rebaptism. But it's not my intent to raise doubts in your mind about your baptism. It is my hope that as we have been going through this series and even as we kind of go through tonight, that you're affirmed in what you did when you were baptized. If you have questions about your baptism, I hope that you'll let me or Luke or David or one of the shepherds know, Jake, so that we can help you and we can answer maybe some questions that you might have. When I was working with the church in Missouri, the Christian church in town, this was a small community, the Christian church split. And so a lot of the members from the Christian church, when it split, they came over to our congregation because it most closely aligned with what they believed. There were a few differences in our beliefs, but they felt like our church was the best option for them, so they came over. And so that brought up some questions with the elders, and of course I was 31, 32 years old, and, and it brought questions to me as well that I'd never pondered before, never really thought about. I was a new Christian too. This was like 2005, I became a Christian in 97, so it was an eye-opening learning experience for me, and when these folks came over, you know, what do we do? How do we approach the topic of integrating them into our congregation? And of course, my belief was you start with the most important two questions. What does it mean to be a New Testament Christian in the New Testament church? That's always what it means, right? That's always the most important two questions. Not what does it mean to be Church of Christ? What does it mean to be a part of the Oldham Lane Church of Christ? What does it mean to be a New Testament Christian in the New Testament church? And in studying with these folks and sitting down with them, what we found was that Across the board, they believed in baptism for the remission of sins. And in fact, they had been baptized at one point in their life in a scriptural manner, obeying the gospel in the way that it states in scripture. And so they became a part of our congregation. But this wasn't good enough for some of our folks. I can remember one occasion when a couple that we had been visiting with had answered the invitation, expressing their desire to be a part of our congregation. And so the elders had talked to them and prayed with them and, and, and learned of their baptism, they became a part of our congregation. And I, I remember one gentleman, I heard him behind me after the prayer say, well, are we just going to accept everybody now? And so after services, I went up to him and I just said, hey, what, what did you mean by that? And he said, well, I, I, just, 
I, I think that we need to do a better job of figuring out where they're coming from and if they've been baptized. I said, well, we sat down with them. We talked with them. They've been baptized for the remission of sins. What, what, how do you know? Well, how do you know I've been baptized? I'm your preacher. You know, there's no video evidence. So how do you really know? You take them at their word, right? Well, I just think that it would be better if they would get baptized again and show it to all of us. And I said, well, so find me the biblical precedent that says that baptism to appease others is what you need to do. You know, the truth of the matter is, there are occasions when baptism, rebaptism is necessary. But when done properly, it's a one-time act. Is there repentance that needs to occur after that? Yeah, sure. However, when it's done properly, baptism is a one-time deal. There was one gentleman who was 87 years of age who came over. His wife had always worshipped with us. But he wanted to be baptized again. He just felt like that was the thing to do. And so he got baptized, and as soon as he came up out of the water, he looked at me and he said, I hope that pleases her. And I thought, buddy, you just got wet. Where in the Bible does it say you need to get baptized so you can appease your spouse, right? So we got to know what we're doing here, what we're engaging in, and why we're doing it. What constitutes a scriptural reason for rebaptism? When is it necessary? Some say never. Others feel like they, they need to be baptized every time they commit some sin in their lives. Those are two extremes. The truth of the matter is, when done properly, it is a one-time act, but there are times and occasions where we may question our baptism, and our questioning leads to us realizing that we need to do it again. Well, look with me at the book of Acts chapter 19. And in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, here's what we read. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Did you know we had a scriptural account of a rebaptism? We do, right here. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 1. While on his third missionary campaign, Paul arrives in Ephesus, and there he encounters 12 men who had been baptized with the baptism of John. And so Paul accepted these men into fellowship, and he organized them into a church, right? Not exactly, okay? After questioning them as to the nature of their earlier baptism, Paul found that these men had an incomplete knowledge. Their pre-baptism instruction on the previous occasion had been lacking in some key details. So Paul then asked if they had received the Holy Spirit, to which they said no. In fact, they didn't even know of such a thing. And so Paul determined that these men needed to be baptized again with the baptism of the Great Commission, if you will. They were baptized with John's baptism, but John's baptism was only valid until the death of Jesus on the cross and the preaching of the gospel at Pentecost. And so therefore, Paul immersed these men into Christ, which I think speaks volumes to us and at least helps us to answer the question of rebaptism and when do I need to be rebaptized? At least here, 
there was insufficient teaching that they needed to back up and gain some knowledge before being baptized. Genuine baptism is needed only one time in a person's life. Once a person has been baptized, according to the fullness of Scripture, he or she never has to repeat this new birth. After a person has entered into the family of God through baptism, he or she is a member of the church, the household of God. The new Christian thus has access to all the spiritual benefits that we find in Christ. And although the new Christian is is not sin-free from that point forward, it's not baptism that is needed, but rather repentance. We have this avenue of prayer that we can come to God in humble repentance. So what's the one question that every student has on their mind when they're sitting in class listening to the teacher lecture? If you've ever been a college student and you've sat in class and listened to the teacher teach, what's the one question? Greg, did you say it? What's the one question that is always on your mind? Is this on the test? test? Right. That's all we want to know. Can I tune out now? Or is this what you're saying going to be on the test? And you know, there is a guy in Scripture that really basically asked that question. Is this going to be on the test? The rich young ruler basically asked that, didn't he? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Will this be on the test? Certain conditions or criteria must be met before genuine baptism can take place. And again, this redemptive plan is laid out for us in the New Testament. See, first of all, the sinner has to have faith. And you say, wow, Chris, that's just earth-shattering stuff right there. However, what is often missed in the religious world is that faith is more than just a mental assent. It's more than just acknowledging that you believe in God. Faith, as presented in Scripture, is not stagnant. It is a verb. It is active. It does something. I know you know that, but I think a better way to put it is faith will express itself always. Even those of you in the audience who have been baptized, your faith is expressing itself every day in the way that you live and the fruit that you produce. And so baptism is an expression of faith, but it starts with faith. It doesn't end with faith, but it starts with faith. And it's not a faith that sits tight. It's not a faith that just rests. A strong faith expresses oneself in a decision to put away the old and to put on the new, to live life in a godly direction. And we talked about repentance a few weeks ago. And faith will certainly express itself in repentance which we said was a radical reprioritization of life's values effective immediately. It is a change of mind, a change of will, a change of heart, a change of direction. A faith without repentance is meaningless. We cannot believe and not change. Even the devil believes and shudders. So there has to be an expression of faith. And one of the ways that it is expressed is in repentance. But Paul also tells us in Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10, that faith expresses itself by confession. Now, we have narrowed that down and diluted it to be some sort of statement that we make before baptism. Not that that's unimportant. Absolutely, it is. But it's not the only time we confess. 
If you are a child of God, your faith expresses itself in confession over and over again, daily, multiple times a day, right? We are constantly confessing who it is we follow, who it is we believe in, who it is that we live for. Confession is not a one-time statement. It is a lifestyle. And we constantly confess Christ to others. Some would say that confession is really the only part of expression of faith that we really need. And the rest of it is just filler or not even necessary. But the same Paul who wrote about confession in Romans 10, 9, and 10, four chapters earlier, talked at length about the expression of baptism with our faith. So finally, a saving faith should culminate in baptism or immersion. Now, scriptural baptism must be preceded by the things that we talked about because baptism without faith, obviously, would be meaningless. Without confession or repentance, the same. The others are meaningless without faith and baptism as well. So they all go together. I don't want us to look at this like a checklist sort of thing. I think we get ourselves into trouble by looking at it that way. Faith expresses itself and they all come together as a proper response to the gospel, right? Our sins are washed away. It's where one is put into Christ or into his body. It's not just a ceremony. Baptism is where we contact the blood of Christ. So when someone asks the question, what's on the test? We're really asking, what must I do? How am I saved? And I think Paul answers that question very simply and very plainly. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Faith is always presented in Scripture as active and something that, because it's active, will produce something else or express itself in other ways. You have to know something about faith, and you have to know that it is the starting point. People say, well, are we saved by grace? And I say, absolutely we are. Absolutely we are. But the Bible says it. You know, we always jump to baptism, and certainly that is a part of the salvation process, but you're saved by faith, but only a faith that expresses itself, that expresses itself in repentance and confession, baptism, and it doesn't stop there either. It expresses itself in a life lived for God. Be faithful unto death, right? So, all that being said, let's talk about some instances in which rebaptism might be necessary. There are many denominations, many faith systems that practice baptism. In fact, under the umbrella of Christendom, you will find that most of those religions will practice some sort of baptism. However, how do we look at baptism as it fits the gospel narrative and our response to those who hear it? So, first thing. And I'm well acquainted with this, even though I don't remember. I was baptized when I was two days old because my mother was sincere. I do not want to bash or diminish a parent's sincerity at all. I just simply want to inform, when it comes to Scripture, baptism is for those who believe, right? Baptism is for believers, those who have heard the gospel and who can respond to it properly. What did I know at two days old about faith 
and the expression of faith. What sin did I commit in my mother's womb? Now, obviously, there is a different belief there, that of original sin, which is why I was in, you know, uh, sprinkled at, at two days old. But if a person is baptized as an infant, then that would be an instance where you need to consider baptism again. Because infant baptism does not meet the criteria of baptism that is set forth in Scripture. Another instance would be baptism without immersion. You know, the proper mode of baptism that is expressed throughout Scripture is immersion. And there's a good reason for that. Because of what it symbolizes. It symbolizes the death of our old sinful self. It is us being intimately acquainted with Jesus as we go down into the water. We are buried and then we come up raised a new creature in Christ. It's a reason why Paul expressed it so well in Romans chapter 6 talking about burial. You know, when you bury a body, you don't sprinkle dirt on it. You bury it completely. You cover it up to where it can't even be seen with dirt, right? In college, I had the opportunity to visit a Greek Orthodox church. And Greek Orthodox folks, they believe in baptism by immersion. Now, they practice infant baptism, but they immerse babies. And so we were sitting there, and we had an opportunity to ask the priest about baptism. And one of the questions that was asked is, so can, can baptism be by another mode? Sprinkling, uh, pouring, something of that nature. Now, being Greek Orthodox, he knew the Greek, right? And so we wanted to hear it straight from him, and he laughed at the question. Baptism can only be expressed, he said, in immersion. That's the only way you can read that word and the concept associated with it. The two go hand in hand. Baptism can only be immersion because that's what it means. It doesn't mean anything else. Here's another instance. Baptism without repentance. I think this goes without saying, but one can just get wet, right? One can engage in the ritual without it ever meaning anything. And a case of that would be someone who is immersed but never really truly repented, never made a decision to live their life in a godly direction. Along those same lines, baptism without faith, you know, one who just decides to submit to the ritual because they feel like maybe it's the right thing to do, but there's really not a faith in the deity of Jesus. And some religions don't believe in the deity of Jesus, but yet they practice immersion. But one that has a faith in Jesus Christ being the Son of God will express that faith in baptism. Another one would be baptism without purpose. A baptism that was not done for the proper purpose would deem rebaptism re as necessary. And this, this instance is one that affects a lot of individuals. If nothing else, it causes a lot of people to contemplate their reasons for engaging in baptism, whether their motives were valid. I can't tell you how many people come to me and they say, you know, I, I got baptized when I was younger, and since then I've learned a whole lot more. Maybe I need to get rebaptized. Or someone that says, I, I think I made an emotional response. Maybe I need to do it again. When I was a, a youth minister, we were at church camp. 
and there were three or four folks that wanted to get baptized that night after the lesson, and there were about three or four others that I knew weren't ready. They were making an emotional decision. They saw their friends doing it, so they wanted to do it. And so we got to remember the proper purpose. I'm afraid that all too often, we, in our study with folks, we, we push them towards baptism. That's the end-all, be-all. When the Great Commission says, go and do what? Make disciples. That's the goal. We offer an invitation every Sunday. But as I've said before, I don't want anyone deciding on baptism because of an emotion, an emotional response. I don't want somebody merely deciding on baptism just because the song gave them goosebumps. I want people who are getting baptized to know exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. Because I think that is a real problem that we have in the church is that many people get baptized and they walk out of the church building and they never pick up a cross because they've never known what it means to truly be a disciple. We push them towards baptism and then we can put a, a, you know, a check mark or, or, or a number in the bulletin. You know, look how many baptisms we've had. How many disciples did we make? That's the key, right? Because Jesus wants finishers. You know, we, we tend to think that if we, if we concentrate too hard for too long, we might run them off. Jesus didn't have that issue. Jesus didn't worry about that at all. When we see a crowd, we get excited. When Jesus saw a crowd, he got skeptical, right? And he told them, do you know what you're doing? Have you considered the cost? Some said, I'll follow you. Okay, well, here's what it's going to cost. And he let them leave, didn't he? We don't want to drive anybody away who's thinking about baptism. But we need to make sure that they understand it's not just about baptism. It's about faith expressing itself in baptism and expressing itself in discipleship. Baptism is not the goal. Discipleship's the goal. And certainly baptism is a big part of that. But that's not the finish line. That's the start line. The start line of a life lived for Christ. Here's the deal. If you're concerned about your baptism, I hope, I hope that you'll talk to me or one of the staff members or one of the shepherds. I hope that you will make uh, every effort to study the topic and, and, and make sure that, that you're right with God. But at the same time, I, I don't want everyone questioning their baptism. That's not, that's not my goal. But what is the goal for us who have been immersed, who are Christians, who are disciples? What is our goal from this point forward, to live a life for Christ, but also to make and grow disciples, right? I mean, that is our mission here. We put it on the front of the bulletin. It's up here on the PowerPoint every week to make and grow disciples, not go out and just baptize a bunch of folks. We can do that. And we see that a lot. We see that a lot with, uh, you know, with missionaries and jail ministries, right? You know, how many baptisms did you have? It's like that's all we're focused on is the number. Now, how many disciples did you make? That's the goal. Not quotas. Not how many people we can dunk and send on their way. How many disciples did we make? And hopefully in this series we have seen that there's more to baptism than just getting them in the water. That there's a lot that comes before that. And there's a lot that comes after that. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another day. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be together as a church family. God, we pray that we, can, that we can serve you to the best of our ability always, that our faith will express itself 
not just in baptism, but in the way that we live our lives after our baptism. God, may we seek to make and grow disciples in our own lives. May we be all about the mission because you've given us a message and a mandate. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. I want to encourage all of you to live out your baptism. I want you to filter your life through your baptism. How many of you do that in your daily walk? You come to a, a, a big decision, maybe a spiritual fork in the road, and you go, okay, because I was baptized, here's what I need to do. You ever do that? Remember your baptism. Filter things through your baptism. Filter your life through that. And remember that you continue to obey the gospel always. You don't do it one time at baptism. You continue the rest of your life to obey the gospel. Live your life in light of your baptism. David's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you, if we can pray with you, if you're ready to submit to baptism, if you want to study more about it, then let us know and come as we stand and as we sing.